Why should I care about a list of names in the Bible? Any pastor who encourages his people to read the scripture for themselves has likely heard this. I skip over the list of all those names. Lists are boring. I can't pronounce half of them. I don't understand why they're there. But I want to read something meaningful. I want to read something relevant for me. Friends, this morning I'm going to argue that you should care about the lists of names in the Bible. You're saying, all right, Pastor, aren't you really just some big dork that can't leave seminary behind? Like, you want me to be interested in what you're interested in, and I am really not interested in a three-page list of names. Not at all, my friends. I want you to be interested in these lists of names because they encourage, will encourage you in your faith today. So if you are seeking relevance, study genealogies. Biblical genealogies help us to understand how God has redeemed a people to himself. A people with no hope. A people like you and me. And people like Ruth and Naomi. This past month or past weeks, we have been studying the book of Ruth. And we see that Ruth is a short story in the Old Testament that showcases God's hesed. His steadfast loyalty. His steadfast love. And Ruth takes place during the time of Judges. And you know from the book of Judges, if you've ever read it, that that is a crazy time in Israel's history that is uh, defined by one statement. Everyone did what is right in their own eyes. Everyone did what they wanted to do. Everyone did according to their will, which sometimes we feel like we live in that day today. We saw in the book of Ruth that a man named Elimelech took his family out of the covenant community. So God had given Israel this land, this land promised to Abraham, and he had given them each other, a people that were his people. And Elimelech, because of a famine, a famine that came because of their disobedience, says, I'm going to leave the promised land. I'm going to leave God's people, and I'm going to go do my own thing, turn my back on the covenant. And because of it, he died. He and his two sons. Leaving his wife Naomi and their daughters-in-law impoverished, without hope. Naomi decides, I'll go back to my people and I'll die there. But before she does, she tells her daughters-in-law to go back to their people. Go back to their pagan families. Maybe you can get married again and have some sort of hope in this life. One goes back, but Ruth clings to Naomi. She says, where you die, I will die. Your God is my God. And then she swears by the one true and living God that she will do this. She turned from everything she knew, her pagan upbringing, to God and was faithful to the covenant community where Elimelech, who was born into it, was not. Ruth turned to God and she was faithful to Naomi. And the scriptures say that she was to Naomi more than seven sons. She worked from sunup to sundown to provide for her mother-in-law. She trusted God, but still worked hard. And eventually she caught the eye of a good man, a man named Boaz, one of Ruth's family redeemers. And he was good to Ruth. And he purchased her redemption and restored her. And God gave this couple a son. 
a son from whom would come the son, Jesus Christ. That is why you should care about lists of names in the Bible. And if you turn with me to Ruth chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 18 and read just the final verses here. Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered uh, Mimadad, Dab, and Aminadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz, and Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Here we see in this short genealogy at the end of Ruth, the family lineage of King David. This ancient genealogy is not meant to be an exhaustive record book, but it is crafted in such a way as to show us King David, to highlight a point, and that is David. Now, crafted does not mean manipulated or changed. We, as Westerners, we want everything very linear. We want every gap filled in. But in the ancient world, that's not always how they communicated truth. Imagine this. If I ask you to give a, pre- a, a presentation on American presidents, we have over 40 of them, would you start with George Washington and then give a summary of every single president? Maybe. Or you might hit the highlights. You might start with Washington. Maybe talk about Abra- uh, uh, Adams and Jefferson. But then you might skip forward to Lincoln. And then you might go to Teddy Roosevelt and FDR and, and then on to the current president, hitting the highlights and explaining in their own day what they were facing. And that's what we see in this list. It's not an extensive list. It's around 500 years from Perez to David. Yet if every single one of these men listed were to father the next generation at 30, we'd only be at about 150 years. But that's not that they are trying to manipulate or change anything. They're just hitting the highlights, if you will. This list is tailored. And if you lived in the ancient world, you'd understand what the writer is doing here. And the writer starts with a man named Perez. Perez heads the dominant clan of Israelites in Bethlehem. So it makes sense to start with Perez. He doesn't start with Abraham. He doesn't start with Noah or Adam. He starts with Perez. Then we go on to Hezron. Hezron went to Egypt with Israel, with, with Jacob. So you remember the story in Genesis where they all migrate to Egypt because there's food there, right? That's, that's, that would have been Hezron's generation. Then we move forward to Nashon, who lived during the time of Moses. So all the, the craziness that we see that happens in the wilderness with Moses, Nashon would have been a part of that. Then we move on to Boaz, who we've, we've, we've read a lot about. He's a worthy man. He's a man that God used to re- redeem Naomi and Ruth. And then we move to Obed. Obed was Ruth's son, and he's an intentionally placed seventh in the list. There again, this is how these lists are tailored. The seventh position was a place of honor, and here we have Obed, who is there. 
And then we get to Jesse, David's father, a man we're gonna, we learn a lot about in 1 Samuel. And finally, we get to the focus of this genealogy, and that's David. David, the second king of Israel. You remember that Saul is the first king of Israel. He's the king right after the time of Judges, and David is the second king. The first time we meet David in the historical books, he is faithfully tending his father's sheep. Contrast that to where we first meet Saul, the first king. Saul is roaming the countryside trying to gather his father's donkeys. So we have Saul, who's wandering around trying to get his dad's donkeys, and then we meet David, and he is faithfully tending his father's sheep. The writer is showing us something here. God is showing us something here in the narrative about these two men. In fact, we find that David is superior to Saul at every point in the story. You remember when Goliath comes out and Saul is paralyzed with fear and he refuses to go out to meet him. And Saul is tall and he's beautiful. And what about David? David's short, he's a shepherd boy. Yet we find David, unlike Saul's paralyzed fear, we find David being brave, like Caleb and Joshua, going out to honor God. David slew the Philistine giant named Goliath. He was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. He was persecuted by King Saul, yet refused to raise his hand against him. He became the king of Israel and defeated Israel's enemies. He brought the ark back to Jerusalem, and he centralized worship there. He falls. He fails. He's overcome by lust and takes another man's wife, and then has her husband killed in battle to cover up his sin. Yet David confesses and he repents of his sin before God, and God restores David. And despite his failure, we see that David is the king by which all other kings are measured in Israel. He's the standard. David had defeated his enemies. He brought the ark back to Jerusalem. And then he built himself a a fine house made of cedar. And one night he looks out and sees that the ark of the covenant is in a tent. And he says, God has given me victory from all my enemies, and I live in this nice house made out of cedar, yet God's ark is in a tent out there. And so he decides, I'm going to build a house for God's ark, for the ark of the covenant. But what does God say to him? He says, David, you will not build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. And he makes a covenant with David. Now, what is a covenant? A covenant is something that's, that's lost in our day. We don't really understand them. At a, basic, at a basic level, a covenant is a binding promise. And we see them throughout the Bible. When you were to make a covenant with someone, if I was to make a covenant with Alan McDonald in the ancient world, in Abraham's day, what we would do is we would take these animals and we would sacrifice them. And we would cut them open and lay the two sides out with a trail up between them. And then we would walk hand in hand through these slain animals, through these halved animals, through all of the blood and mess getting all over our shoes. And we'd say, let this be to me if I break my half of the promise. And that's something we should understand when we think about the covenant God made with Abraham. Because when Abraham sacrifices these animals and cuts them open, 
God causes Abraham to, to, to go to sleep and the fire pot, which represents God, passes through alone. In other words, God is saying, I am taking up both sides of this covenant and it will come to pass because I am God. And now we get to the Davidic covenant. David's family line would never die out, God says. And from you is coming a king that will reign forever. This is a promise, a binding promise that I make with you, David. A covenant. That is why covenants are so important. Our marriages are covenants. Our church membership is a covenant. It's not something we just skip in and out of, but it is a binding promise that God has made with his people. And when we skip in and out of our marriages, it only shows that we don't understand the covenant God has made with his people. But Naomi and Ruth's family line almost died out, and God interceded. And this genealogy in Ruth shows how God brought David's family line into existence. But God's plan doesn't end with David. Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1, and you will notice some of the same names here in this list of names. Starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king." And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, and Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elud, and Elud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathen, and Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David the deportation, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now there is a lot that could be said about this list of names. It is jam-packed with theological truth, but we are just going to skim the surface and point out a few things. First, notice something interesting. This list of names emphasizes David. Why do you say that? Well, look, who comes first in, after Jesus, Abraham or David? David. Abraham's the patriarch. He's the OG, if you will, of Israel, and yet David comes before Abraham, emphasizing him. Then look at verse 6. There are a lot of kings of Israel in this long genealogy, and yet David is the only one called the king. Also, we encounter here a, a literary technique used in the ancient world called gematria. Gematria is a form of biblical interpretation using numerical values of letters of Hebrew alphabet to decipher words. We won't go too deep into that, but you should know that, in other words, this list is an artistic arrangement to stress a point. There are three groups of names, and all three of those groups of names have 14 generations in them. David's name is assigned the 14th, uh, David's name has 14 uh, uh, associated with it, because in Hebrew it's three letters, Dalet, Vav, Dalet. Dalet is four, Vav is six, and the other Dalet, I guess, is four. And so it adds up to 14. To us it may seem kind of crazy, but in, in, in ancient Israel, 14 was associated with David, and here we see all of these 14s. So by the God-breathed scriptures, by what the original author is arranging, this genealogy in this manner, he is making a direct statement. It is this, Jesus is a part of David's line. The primary purpose of this genealogy, the reason it is here is to show that Jesus belongs to David's legal line. And so Matthew is laying before these original readers that the Messiah in the line of David is Jesus. Look at verse 16. Matthew calls Jesus the Christ. Christos, the Greek word for Christ, is the equivalent to the Hebrew word for Messiah. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one that was foretold in the Davidic covenant. The king that will reign forever. The, the, the one whose throne will never end. It's Jesus. He's the one we've been waiting for. Jesus is the eternal king. He is the, the new and the better David. The king who reigns for eternity. Friends, there are so much in these lists of names that we skim over during our devotion readings. Looking for something practical today. And they are so rich. And I want to lay before you four reasons. Four reasons that you should care about lists of names from the Bible. First, these genealogies give credibility to the truth we believe. Jesus is not just some rando guy that pops onto the scene and says, Hey, I'm the Son of God, and everybody goes, Sweet, what do you have for us? 
But Jesus' human lineage, we can see where he came from, humanly speaking. We can research these events. We can look back through the Old Testament and see where he comes from and that he is indeed of the line of David. Bible scholars even say that the names in these lists uh, of these genealogies, they, they, they match up with names used during the time periods. I was just curious, I didn't go too deep into this, but I, I, I googled Anglo-Saxon names over the last over thousand years. And today, the most popular girl names that I could find are Olivia and Harper. 500 years ago, though, it would have been Mary and Elizabeth. A thousand years ago, it would have been Edith or Hilda. And my favorite two Anglo-Saxon girl names that are even older are Bladeswith and Tate. So for those of you that may have daughters or granddaughters in the future, you're going to want to write those down. But the point being is that over time, names change. Names grow and diminish in popularity. And when we study these genealogies, we find that they match up with ancient history. They strengthen the historical accuracy of the Bible and thereby strengthen our faith. So you should care about genealogies because they give credibility to the truth we believe. Just as we learned downstairs today, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Second, genealogies teach us that God cares about individuals. Think about the book we've just been reading here of Ruth. These are not faceless, nameless people in a a fairy tale. This is not, if you will, the Brothers Grimm. Just some, some random fairy tales with maybe some moral point at the end. But these genealogies and these stories represent real people. People created in God's image. The people in these lists lived and died. They laughed and they cried. They, they were afraid. They had fear. And they were brave. And they showed courage. They were real people created in God's image. And as the drama of the Bible unfolds, we see that God chose to reveal his love and mercy through stories in human history. Ultimately, revealing his love in one who was true and faithful humanity, Jesus Christ. The better Adam, the better David, Jesus, the God-man. God works through and cares about individuals, and he cares about people today. Jesus himself told us in his Gospels that there is not one sparrow that falls to the ground without God's consent, the one who created and spoke everything into existence. Now, we don't elevate ourselves higher level than we are. We are still creation. But the fact that the Creator cares about you and I should be of great encouragement. And these lists of names show us the love of this holy God. Third, Genealogies teach us about God's plan to redeem mankind. So God creates the universe. He speaks it into existence, and it's perfect. And who messes it up? We do. Mankind rebels against God. Mankind disobeys God. And from that time, every single one of us inherits a sin nature. From that time, every single one of us has a nature that rebels against the one true and living God. 
We are corrupted by sin, but God is gracious. And from the foundation of the world, he had a plan to redeem to himself a people. And in these genealogies of redemption that doesn't start in the New Testament, but we first learn about in the Old. That is why, friends, we cannot unhitch the New Testament from the Old Testament. Because here in this genealogy of Matthew, he demonstrates the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a continuation of the story in the Old Testament. Who does it start with after Christ? David, Old Testament guy. Abraham, Old Testament guy. And then three lists of 14 names, all were Old Testament. And we could say, too, that the story we have been studying for the last few weeks is a part of this story. Ruth's story. Because the genealogy says so. It is the fulfillment of the Bible's larger story, the overarching story of redemption, and the genealogies show us the connection with the Old Testament storyline. A record of birth of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham and said, From you, all the people of the world would be blessed. From Abraham would come Christ who would bless all the world. He tells David, A descendant of yours will reign forever and will be my son. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of both of these covenants. Because as Paul says, it's all the promises of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Christ. And Matthew wants us to see that from the beginning, he is continually pointing his readers to the fact that Jesus is the new and better David. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the Bible is the story of how Jesus came to earth to redeem his bride and friends. One day, he will come back to gather her. Fourth, genealogies teach us that God includes fallen individuals and outsiders in his plan. In, geneal- in Jesus' genealogy, we find that four women are highlighted. Who are they? Well, none of them are Sarah. None of them are Rebecca. None of them are Rachel. And those are all three important women in Israel's history. Who are they? Well, it's Tamar, it's Rahab, it's Ruth, and Bathsheba. All four of them. Gentiles. All four of these women are from outside of Israel. We find in this genealogy, in the Bible, that God includes all types of people in his plan to redeem man. Men and women, Jews and Gentiles, those who have remained in the covenant community and those who are from outside of it. God uses imperfect people, those who have made bad decisions, and they are included in the family tree of David and ultimately in the family tree of the Messiah. Throughout the Gospels, we find that Jesus includes the rejects of society. He includes the outsiders of society. Jesus' own disciples were fishermen and tax collectors and government rebels. And Paul mirrors the same language when he says, Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were powerful. But God chose you and included you in his family. God includes outsiders in his plan. 
In the book of Ruth, in the whole Bible, we find that God sovereignly is directing the footsteps of all men and all women. All the Old Testament stories, all the Old Testament promises find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That's why you should care about lists of names in the Bible. Because they are pointing you to Christ, your Redeemer. You who are destitute like Ruth must care about the well-worn path that leads to the threshing floor where your Redeemer awaits. Jesus is the foretold Davidic king. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the prince of peace. He is the everlasting father. He is the mighty God who both created and sustains his creation. Jesus, he is not created, but he is the eternal creator. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is not 50% God and 50% man, but he is 100% God and 100% man. It's bad math, but it's good theology. He is God incarnate. He is God in flesh. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. The eternal God wraps himself in flesh and becomes man. As Charles Wesley wrote in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Bailed in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. So often, we don't read the old hymns, but there is so much theology and so much good in them. The eternal Son broke into the sinful world out of failure of mankind, out of the failure we see in this genealogy, out of Abraham's failure, out of David's failure, Uriah's wife, harlots and prostitutes, Christ shines forth. Like an atomic bomb, Christ burst into this world, not to play games, not to make people feel better, but to wage war against an enemy and to keep the promises that God made with his creation. Breaking the back of sin and evil, opening the eyes of the blind and setting the captive free, redeeming to himself a fallen people. And from 2,000 years ago, we read another list. A list of men and women whom God has called to himself. As we read church history, we see men and women that have, that have died for the faith, that have sacrificed for the faith. And friends, I ask, is your name on this list? Are you among the, the names of Polycarp? Are you among the names of Lydia and Athanasius and Perpetua and Calvin and Wesley and Jerusha Edwards and Spurgeon and Billy Graham and Corey Tinboom? Are, are you among them? Is your name written in heaven? Or are you the imposter who has infiltrated God's people looking for emotional fulfillment and community? Worse yet, are you the one that's only here because you like to argue about theology or politically it favors you? Because I say to you, friends, there is only one way. And it is through Christ. If you've read the Pilgrim's Progress, there is only one way and it is through the gate. The narrow gate. Remember the two men, if you've read the book, who jump over the fence into Emmanuel's land, but they did not come in the right way. And friends, I say there is only one way, and it is through Jesus Christ. And you must repent. You must turn from your sin and turn from yourself and believe 
on Jesus Christ. Today. Today is the day. Father, we praise your name for this list. Father, we praise your name for your word and the, and the, and the way you have worked in history. God, we praise your name that you are a good God who redeems to yourself fallen men and women. Father, break the hearts of those here who have never trusted God. In your grace, sovereignly draw them to yourself. Father, I pray that you would be merciful to them as you have shown me mercy. All for your honor and your glory alone. In Christ's name, amen.